Welcome to the Holmes Politicast. I'll be your host today. We have a lot of news, so we're going to jump right into the stories today. Um, one thing, um, one thing I wanted to start off with is about uh, the uh, National Guard is still in Washington D.C., occupying that city, as we do Baghdad and or Iraq and these other places. I mean, we've got the city occupied. There seems to be a delay in, in, in leaving Washington, D.C., and I'm not exactly sure why. At first, they said they wanted to leave them there to until the trial, the impeachment trial of Donald Trump was done, in case anybody tried to disrupt it. Then they're saying, well, we kind of want to wait until March 4th, because that is the date that QAnon has said that uh, Trump's going to be sworn in for his second term on March 4th. But everybody, including the FBI director, Christopher Wray, has said that they've seen no evidence that there's going to be any kind of riots or anything on that day. So I'm not sure why the National Guard is still being kept in Washington, D.C. It's been over 50 days. They need They need to go. They need to go home. Uh, my fear is that they're just going to stay indefinitely, just like we do in the Middle East and every other place. Um, I just, I just don't think it's necessary. I, you know, it was necessary the day of the storming of the Capitol just to restore order. But after that, there was no reason to keep them there. I mean, really, after that day, you know, maybe, maybe one more day, just, you know, just to be safe. But. I think everybody pretty much left after that. I mean, they all got on planes and buses and went home. So I don't really understand what the purpose of the fencing around the Capitol is right now or the National Guard being there. But um, I've been seeing a lot of people talking about revolution. You know, um, I've seen a couple of Twitter sites with uh, – Republicans that I follow on Twitter saying that um, that the recourse, the the only recourse we have, is the Second Amendment to uh, keep our government. Um, and I do agree that that definitely the right to keep and bear arms is important uh, for for tyranny and things. But the founders gave us. Uh, I mean, that should be the last resort. Resort. I mean, that should be the very last thing because the founders gave us safety valves in our republic to address wrongs. I mean, we can petition. We have the right to free assemble. We, uh, we, have, um, we have political activism, um, civil disobedience. You have, uh, we have free elections that we can – vote we have checks and balances uh you know so that you know if congress passes a law that's ridiculous the president can veto it it's not just becomes a law just because the congress passes it the president can veto it if they're both of the same party and they're working in collusion to pass something the supreme court then is able to nullify it we have we have the the court system that we can take things to court laws and other things if we feel our rights are being discriminated against there are my my point is there are many many 
uh, valves and things uh, to to redress issues um, or to address issues and things to to change. And of course, and not just can we vote for people, we can actually run for office ourselves. And, and you know, we don't have to rely on somebody else to do it and say, well, why can't somebody, why can't we have a good person run? Well, you run if you if, if you don't see any good candidates in office. So my point is, I'm not I'm not saying that we should abolish the Second Amendment or the Second Amendment isn't important. What I'm saying is, though, that many people are are thinking that, and this is the problem with the storming of the Capitol as well, that they think that the only option we have is violent revolution, when that should be the last resort when nothing else works. In fact, it's even talked about in our Declaration of Independence. I mean, it, it says, uh, let me just quote here from the Declaration. It says that to secure these rights, um, and it's talking about the life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness, that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. That would be us. That whenever any form of government becomes destructive to these ends, it is the right of the people to alter or to abolish it and to institute new government, laying its foundation on such principles and organizing its powers in such form as to them shall seem most likely to affect their safety and happiness. This is the part that's important. Prudence indeed will dictate that governments long established should not be changed for light and transient causes. So what they're saying there is that when a government has been long established like ours has, you just don't make changes willy-nilly um, or just because you just don't like something. You know, um, we have the right to alter our government. We have amendments to the Constitution. We have laws that can be passed. Uh, we can, you know, like we said, we can vote out people. If all of those options are no longer viable, then we get to the point where it is our right to abolish our government, that we retain that right to abolish this government. But it's got to be universal. It can't just be a small group uh, who doesn't like the election results or doesn't like the laws that are being passed. It's got to be a large part portion of our, of our uh, populace. And that's only when you can no longer make changes when i mean when you no longer when the government is no longer responsive when there is no way to address your concerns as a government that is that is when you turn to something as uh in, um as large as revolution or insurrection or whatever you want to call it but until then we have like i said we have many ways to address problems in our country without going to um, immediately jumping to armed revolution. So um, I just want you to keep that in mind, that uh, it is important to have a Second Amendment. It is very important. Uh, we're not completely free without it. The government has to know that the people have the ability to rise up against them. And it should, the government should be in fear of the people not necessarily cowering under their desks, but I mean, that they should live in fear that the people will rise up if they start behaving in a manner that uh, 
is tyrannical. But uh, but that shouldn't be just because we have the right to abolish our government. It doesn't mean that we need to do that every couple of years, that we need to go and abolish the government and, and restart over because we have the ability to make changes to our government um, when we feel it's necessary. So I just – I wanted I, – I saw that today actually on Twitter. I saw a number of people talking about um, – it wasn't violent, but you know they were just mentioning the fact that, that the Second Amendment was important because that is going to be our only way to address problems when our government gets out of control and or when our government is no longer listening to the people's voices, you know, with all of the things going on in the world today and the cancer culture and, and these things, they're saying that, that we need the second amendment for that purpose. We need to have guns so we can be ready to, to take over. And I'm just saying that is not, we're not at that point yet. We still have many ways to address issues that we don't agree with without without grabbing our guns and heading to Lansing or heading to Washington, you know, we still need to exhaust every other possibility before we even consider that sort of thing. And we have an example of that with the Founding's founding fathers who they spent over a decade dealing with the British government. I mean, sometimes we forget that because in history it's, you know, we don't hear about the long the patient suffrages, sufferings of the people, we hear, you know, the Stamp Act and the, you know, and the Intolerable Acts, and we hear about the Boston Tea Party, and we hear about, you know, uh, you know, we hear all these things, and then suddenly we're in revolution. Uh, and when you look at the dates of these things and you look at the timeline, you realize that they spent well over a decade slowly petitioning, they petitioned the king, they they made, I mean, that was later on, they petitioned the king, but they made petitions to the to the councils of Massachusetts. They, you know, they slowly, it was a slow burn that, you know, they kept trying to address the issues and they kept being denied. And, and, uh, and then the king would put harsher penalties on them because they were doing civil disobedience and refusing to pay taxes and other things. And, you know, and then that would be addressed and, you know, and it just, it was a slow process, well over 10 years until it got to the point where they no longer were being heard, where the government, the king in this case, put out a letter, uh, a statement of rebellion and said that the people in the colonies now were in a rebellious state and there was no point in dealing with it. He warned the colonial governors and all these people who were appointed by the king no longer deal with them. They are becoming rebellious. They are in rebellion. We are looking at them as in rebellion, and we're going to have to clamp down. We're no longer going to listen to their petitions. You know, and at that point, they said, the colonists said, okay, we're done. We're done. If you're no longer going to listen to us, then we have no point. Then we have no, I mean, not no point. We have no choice but to declare independence from you because you're no longer responsive to our needs. You're no longer listening to us. You're no longer, you know, so that's my point. We have that, uh, we have that precedent that was set. There was long suffering. The people were long suffering and they exhausted every possibility. And when the King finally said, 
enough. I'm not listening to you anymore. We're done. We're done. We are now going to clamp down. You're going to be considered um, rebellious, and we're going to force you back into submission. That's when the colonists said, okay, okay, then if you're not going to listen to us, we're going to force you to listen to us with our weapons, with our, you know, and all that. So I just want to make that clear. We need to think. We need to think about. We need to think long term. We can't be thinking the short term revolution. You know, get your guns, head to Lansing, head to Washington. We're going to have ourselves a revolution. I mean, that's not that's not the way to do things right now. We've got to be slow, methodical, and hopefully we won't have to get to that point. We can we can make changes without having to to get to that point because um, wars and revolutions are bloody, they're horrible, they rip people apart, they rip families apart. It does a lot of damage. I mean, just look at the Civil War. We're still suffering from the effects of the Civil War that happened back in the 1860s because it's so divisive. Things like that, it, it takes a long, long time for uh, nations to heal after something like that. So that is not something that we ever want to jump into without a lot of thought, a lot of prayer, and a lot of time that goes, you know, we can only do that when it gets to a point when the government is no longer responsive to us. And at this point, they still are responsive. They might grudgingly be responsive, but but we still have court systems. We still, there are no gallows, you know, being set up, even even for the uh, the people as, as, as the press and, the, and, and everyone's calling the insurrectionists who stormed the Capitol. There are no gallows out there. Some of them are facing some jail time, but nobody's being killed for treason. Nobody's being lined up in a firing squad. They're still, grudgingly, but they're still listening to the people. They're still, um, you know, they haven't got to that point where sedition and things like this are punishable by death. So there's still some hope out there. I mean, don't, we're not at that point, and I just I just want to make clear I don't think any of our listeners are thinking along those lines. But I just just want to remind people that we're not at all at that point. So, um, you know, we could be thankful for that that there are still systems in place that we can air our grievances. Um, uh, just a couple of local. St- stories that I want to touch on real quick and then we'll move uh, to some national stories and then to uh, one international story that I wanted to touch on. Um, The first one is by a reporter named Dave Boucher. I'm just reading this as his tweet. Um, And so it says that Republicans in the Michigan House and Senate are working to complete a deal on how they want to allocate billions of federal relief dollars already appropriated by Congress in 2020. Governor Whitmer's team is not included in the talks, so don't be surprised by line item vetoes eventually. So, um, I mean, there's not a whole, it's pretty self-explanatory. But finally, what we're seeing here, and this is what I've been waiting for for the Republicans to do, is to start putting together their own plans instead of just letting Whitmer make all the decisions and then they just say, 
no, we don't like that. They need to offer something, put something on the table to negotiate. And, you know, that way we can we can work out a deal here between the governor and the legislature. So, um, so the Republicans in the House and Senate are working on something to allocate these this money that uh, has been put out. They're not working with the governor yet. With their, I assume they're going to put together something, pass it, and then put it on her desk. And we'll see here. This Mr. Buchar thinks that she'll probably use her line item veto, take out certain portions of it that she doesn't agree with, and then uh, and. I mean, I guess, I guess, um, and then I, I, I don't know what the Republicans will do at that point, because this is a little different than the actual veto power. This is something that the president, uh, President Clinton had for a very short time, and then the Supreme Court ruled it unconstitutional for the president. Um, and what this means is that the president, or in this case, the governor, can pass a bill, but she can cross out theoretically, anything that she doesn't agree with in the bill, and that won't become law, but everything she leaves does become law. Now, it probably wouldn't stand up in the Michigan Supreme Court, just like it did in the in the, in the federal Supreme Court, because the Supreme Court argued in that case that, that um, the president is not a legislature, and so they can't add or subtract from a law that has been passed by Congress, or in this case, by the legislature. So the president either has to say, I don't agree with these provisions, and I'm vetoing the bill, and send it back to the Congress for them to either take those things out, you know, um, or gives them the opportunity to take those things out and resubmit the bill without them so the president can sign them. What they said is that by by crossing it out, he's acting. He was acting as the legislature. He's saying, "I'm, I'm not. Um, I'm going to, uh, uh, I'm going to change the bill to my liking, and then pass it." And they, and they said, "He can't change the bill to his liking. He, the Constitution only says you can, you can veto or pass it. It doesn't say you can amend it, and make it say whatever you want it to say. You can cross out words. You can cross out letters. You can." You know, um, you can't rewrite it and say, well, um, I'm going to, to write out my own little amendment on this bill. You can't do that because you've either got to pass it or veto it based on what the bill says. So I would imagine it would be the same thing if it went to the Michigan Supreme Court because Governor Whitmer is not a member of the legislature. She cannot amend legislation. Only the House or the Senate can amend legislation. But as of right now, it's legal in Michigan. So she can cross out anything that she doesn't agree with and then just pass the rest of it, which, in my opinion, is a recipe for disaster and will only set her up for a big fight with the Congress. Um, and I don't, really don't know what the recourse is because if she passes it with a line item veto, I don't think that the, the, the legislature can override her because she didn't veto it. There is nothing that says they can override portions of the bill that she crossed out. You know, the state constitution is very clear that they can override her veto, but if she passes it, I, there's no provision that they can override 
certain lines in that that she crossed out. So I'm not really sure, except for them repassing another bill, you know, with only that stuff that she crossed out. I'm not sure what their recourse is. So anyway, we'll probably see that pretty soon here because the House and Senate are working together. They'll probably have that on our desk in the next month or so. Um, the other, the other state issue that um, I haven't really talked about, but now there's starting to be some real questions about it, is that, um, as you may know, uh, Robert Gordon um, was, oh, now I can't remember. I think he was head of the Health and Human Services Department here in Michigan, and he resigned abruptly, uh, maybe a month or so ago, a couple of weeks ago for sure. Might have been up to a month now. And it was very abrupt, and there were a lot of questions at the time, like, why did he suddenly quit? And nobody was talking about it. Governor Whitmer wouldn't answer questions about it, and he wasn't answering any questions about it. Everyone was just kind of mum. Well, not just mum. Like I said, they, 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 they said no comment. I mean, they weren't commenting on it. It wasn't just they didn't – it's not just that they were asked and they just ignored it. It was like they, they said they would not comment on it. So there were a lot of questions about what's going on. And um, so all of a sudden now, this week, we find out that Mr. Gordon received $155,000 in government pay payments, and but it requires him and the government to maintain confidentiality about the circumstances that led to his departure. This is by Craig Mauger. He's another reporter, um, and uh, in 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 Detroit. Um, so this has now led to a flurry of questions throughout the Michigan press as to what are they hiding? What happened here that caused him to quit abruptly? And nobody will explain why he quit. And that now he's getting $155,000. But in the small print says that he nor the government can tell anybody why he left. That raises $155,000 worth of questions here as to what happened. What does he know? What did he do? What does the government know? Who's at fault here? Is it something the government did that they want him to remain quiet about? Is it something that he did that the government wants him to remain quiet about? Um, this is this is very disturbing, and we don't know yet. And um, so I don't have anything new to report to you, but this is a question that needs to be answered. I mean, uh, especially with Governor Whitmer running for re-election next year. We need, is there something we need to know? This is awfully suspicious. This does not happen very often. And my argument would be not only do the people need to know because of transparency, but we have a right to know because that $155,000 is our money. You know, they were employee, he's an employee of ours who left abruptly and then got paid hush money. And not like 
not like Whitmer reached into her bank account and paid him $155,000 and said, I'd like you to remain quiet. They took $155,000 of our money and paid him and then told him and then tells the people, we can't tell you why we spent your money on hush money. You know, we can't, you have no right to know why your employees left and why we spent $155,000 of your money to keep them quiet. I just, that's not right. Um, you know, like I said, it might be a different argument if this was like Governor Whitmer's maid or something and she left abruptly and Governor Whitmer paid her out of her own pocket, then they could say, hey, this is a private matter. You know, it happened in the governor's mansion. You know, we paid her out of her own money. You know, we'd like to keep this quiet because, you know, you know, just out of privacy issues, you know, but this is this is our money. Um, that $155,000 uh, is supposed to be allotted to other things. We don't, we didn't pay our taxes so they could pay hush money to people. You know, it's money for our roads. It's money for, you know, uh, healthcare. It's money for unemployment. It's money for, you know, any number of things. We didn't, we didn't allocate that money for hush money. So um, we have a right to know. And I... I will be surprised if we find out because the media doesn't like to do due diligence. I mean, they, they like to bring up questions and then they drop it later on. If it becomes too hard, I'd like to see them not let this go like, like a bulldog, you know, um, you know, clamping down. I mean, you know, I don't know if any of you've ever had dogs, but sometimes these dogs get a hold of something and you're like, you know, I, I've, we've had pets in our house and they're chewing on something and, and they could easily swallow it and we'll tell them drop it and they refuse and you go and you try to lift their mouth open so that they'll, they'll spit out whatever they have in their mouth. And it is hard to do because they clench that mouth shut and they refuse to let go. And it is hard. I'm not saying it's impossible, but it's hard to get that open. I want to see the media do that. I want to see them clamp down on this story and no matter how hard the governor or anybody tries to to get them off that it is going to be hard they have clamped down and they refuse to let go um i've also seen that example with alligators or crocodiles one of the two they'll clamp down on something and it is hard to you know uh you end up you seeing in the movies like you know they'll grab onto someone's leg and you know you end up taking sticks and things and beating them over the head, just trying to get them to let go because it is almost impossible to get them to grab their jaws and pull their jaws open, you know, to let go of whatever they've attacked. So I want to see that. I want to see these people be crocodiles or alligators or pit bulls. I want to see them attack um, these stories and not let go no matter what. Um, this is an article I'm going to give without comment. It's from Grand Rapids. Uh, I mean, the article's on Wood TV, but it's an article from Grand Rapids, and I'm just going to give it to you without comment. Um, let you decide for yourself how you feel about this. Bethany Christian Services have opened adoptions to LGBTQ parents under inclusive inclusivity policy. Uh, Grand Rapids-based Bethany Christian Services will now start adopting children to LGBTQ couples. The announcement of a new inclusivity policy came Monday from Bethany, which as a faith-based organization 
previously did not adopt out to same-sex couples. It was first reported by the New York Times. It's going to open up a world for kids who normally wouldn't have a home, so it's just fantastic, said April DeBauer Rose, who was at the center of a landmark case that led to a U.S. Supreme Court to rule same-sex marriage was legal. The case started because her adopted children couldn't legally be tied to both parents. We did get met with a lot of agencies who would not work with us because we're a lesbian couple, she said. The policy approved by Bethany's board of directors does not include the term LGBTQ, but rather says Bethany will implement a nationwide policy of inclusivity in order to serve all families. The policy also acknowledges doctrinal differences among Christian churches, though again, it does not specifically list same-sex marriages as one of those issues. A Monday letter to Bethany staffers also does not explicitly say LGBTQ families may adopt, but does say the organization will now offer services with the love and compassion of Jesus to the many types of families who exist in our world today. In a statement released to News 8, Bethany President and CEO Chris Paluski said the new policy reflects the organization's desire to help as many kids as possible. The statement in part reads, For the past 75 years, Bethany Christian Services has never wavered from our mission of demonstrating the love and compassion of Jesus to children and families. We help families stay together. We reunify families who are separated. And we help vulnerable children find safe, stable homes when they cannot remain in their own. These days, families look a lot different than they did when we started. And Bethany is committed to welcoming and serving all of them. For us to carry out our mission, we are building a broad coalition of people, finding families and resources for children in the greatest need. The people we serve deserve to know that they are worthy of being safe, loved, and connected. The need is great, so we are taking an all-hands-on-deck approach. End quote. In a separate statement, Nathan Bolt, Senior Vice President of Public and Government Affairs at Bethany Christian Services, said that funding gains or losses were not a factor in changing policy. My hope is that they are doing it for the right reasons and they are doing it for the kids, DeBauer Rose said. And I think it's absolutely amazing that there will be even bigger opportunity for children in the foster care sister and in adoption to have a permanent, safe, and loving homes. Bethany runs a massive foster and adoption program with locations in 30 states and more than a dozen countries. It has already been adopting to LGBTQ families in Michigan since May of 2019. The new inclusivity policy includes the entire organization both in and outside of Michigan. The only comment I'm going to make on this is that it was not both-sided. We heard from um, April DeBauer-Rose, who is in support of it. Uh, she's the lesbian woman. And then uh, we heard from the main office. We didn't hear anybody who is opposed to it as to why it's wrong. So that's my only comment on that is that we didn't get both sides of the issue. All we heard was how wonderful this decision is. Um, and you know, So uh, to me, that's not good journalism for that reason. Uh, we should have heard both sides of the issue and been able to make up our own mind. 
But I will allow you to make up your own mind on that based on the limited information you have there. Um, all right. The other story is also from WTV. And this is a national story, or not really national, it's a New York story. But um, it's about Governor Cuomo of New York. You may have heard about this, that he's been now accused three times by three different women of harassment. And uh, I think it's just important to talk about because um, the uh, because such a big deal has been made over the past uh, several years with the Me Too movement and these things that I think it's important that we just not hold Republicans accountable when they have um, done something. But I think it's very important to hold Democrats accountable as well. If we're going to go down this path, I think it's we should be fair to both sides. And, um, and if there's a credible accusation made, whether it's Republican or Democrat, it needs to be taken seriously because that is the new rules that we have established. Um, that every woman needs to be believed, and um, I'm going to stick with that, that a woman has a right to be heard if she makes an accusation. Uh, and we have a right to make that judgment as to whether or not she is telling the truth. In this case, three different women, two of them being staffers that have worked for Governor Cuomo, has said that he has uh, made them uncomfortable, harassed them. I'm not exactly sure what they're arguing. but now. We have another woman, and it says here, um, a former aide accusing New York Governor Andrew Cuomo of sexual harassment condemned him Monday as a manipulative predator, as another woman said the governor had left her shocked and embarrassed after trying to kiss her at a 2019 wedding. The woman, Anna Roosh, became the third woman to publicly accuse Cuomo of offensive behavior and the first who had not worked as a state government employee. She told the New York Times late Monday that she had met the governor for the first time at a September 2019 wedding reception. She said upon meeting her, Cuomo put his hands on her bare back, which she removed, and then put his hands on her face and asked if he could kiss her. I was so confused and shocked and embarrassed, Roosh, now 33, told the Times, I turned my head away and didn't have the words in that moment. A photograph of the event does actually show Cuomo with his hands on Roosh's visibly uncomfortable face. An email seeking comment was sent to Roosh's business. Her social media accounts were private. An email was also sent to Cuomo's administration for comment. The sexual harassment allegations from the two women who had worked for the Cuomo administration led New York's independently elected Attorney General to say she was moving ahead with an investigation. Attorney General Letitia James received a letter Monday from Cuomo's office authorizing her to take charge of the probe after a weekend of wrangling over who should investigate. The late letter enables James, who is also a Democrat, to deputize an outside law firm to conduct an inquiry with full subpoena power. The findings will be disclosed in a public report, the letter said. Cuomo has maintained he had never inappropriately touched or propositioned anyone. The former aide, Charlotte Bennett, on Monday rejected Cuomo's attempted apology in which she excused his behavior as playful, saying in a statement that the governor has refused to acknowledge or take responsibility for his predatory behavior. 
Bennett, who also alleges Cuomo quizzed her about her sex life and asked whether she would be open to a relationship with an older man, wrote that, quote, abusers, particularly those with tremendous amounts of power, are often repeat offenders who engage in manipulative tactics to diminish allegations, blame victims, deny wrongdoing, and escape consequences, end quote. Cuomo supporters, no, Cuomo's support has plummeted amid dual crisis, crises, even among fellow Democrats. The har harassment allegations come on the heels of accusations he covered up the true death toll of coronavirus on nursing home residents. It's quite a tumble for Cuomo, who had been widely celebrated for his leadership during the pandemic, particularly the daily news conferences where he sought to inform and reassure the public with charts, graphs, and a machismo he dubbed New York Tough. Mayor Bill de Blasio and other elected officials have said that while Cuomo is under investigation, he should cede emergency powers he's held since the pandemic began nearly a year ago. The legislature hasn't taken any steps to revoke Cuomo's emergency powers, which are set to expire April 30th, despite a push from Republicans, some Democrats, as well as the uh, SUNY Faculty Union. I honestly don't know what SUNY stands for. Um, I, I don't know. On Monday, Cuomo retained Manhattan litigator Elkin Abramowitz to represent him in his office and probes related to nursing homes. Abramowitz, there's a mouthful, Abramowitz, who previously represented Cuomo's office in a federal investigation into his 2014 decision to shut down a state anti-corruption commission, said he is not representing Cuomo in the sexual harassment matter. Bennett, 25, came forward with her allegations in a story published Saturday in the New York Times. She said that Cuomo told her he was lonely and looking for a girlfriend. Cuomo did not respond to Bennett's statement Monday. Former aide Lindsay Boylan said Cuomo made inappropriate comments about her appearance kissed her without her consent at the end of a meeting and once suggested they play strip poker while aboard his state-owned jet. Boylan, who was running for Manhattan Borough President, first accused Cuomo in a tweet last December and elaborated on the allegations in a Medium post last week. She tweeted Monday about Roosh's alleged experience with the governor, saying, this doesn't make me feel validated, it makes me feel sick. Cuomo has denied Boylan's allegations as untrue. In a statement Sunday, he acknowledged that he had teased people about their personal lives in an attempt to be playful and funny. He said he wanted to act like a mentor to Bennett. I now understand that my interactions may have been insensitive or too personal, and that some of my comments, given my position, made others feel in ways I never intended. I acknowledge some of the things I have said may have been misinterpreted as unwanted flirtation, to the extent anyone felt that way, I am truly sorry about that, he said. His statement drew immediate backlash from critics who said he was throwing responsibility onto the woman, women for perceiving the statements wrong. The letter, letter authorizing James' investigation said that all state employees had been directed to cooperate fully with the review. Cuomo senior advisor Breth Garvey said she would facilitate interviews with witnesses and requests for documents from Cuomo's office. Rose Gar Ross Garber, sorry, 
a lawyer who has represented former governors Mark Sanford of South Carolina and John Rowland of Connecticut, said Cuomo is essentially handling his re reputation to an outsider and saying, have at it, go find whatever you want and publish a report to the public about whatever it is you've concluded that I've done or not done. Um, Katz said that the Attorney General must investigate whether Cuomo subjected other women to a sexually hostile work environment and whether anyone in the Cuomo administration enabled his behavior. Um, uh, initially, Cuomo appeared wanting to, to retain a level of control over the investigation. His office said it was asking a former federal judge, Barbara Jones, to conduct the probe. Then his office suggested that the Attorney General and the state's judge work together to appoint outside counsel. But finally, on Sunday, Cuomo acquiesced to James's demands that she take control. A lot to unpack there. Wow. Um, never been a big fan of Cuomo. Doesn't mean he's guilty. But it it does seem as if the evidence is pretty overwhelming here. And um, uh, another thing that makes it seem like to me uh, that um, this is legitimate is number one, uh, one of the ladies uh, reported this back in December. Of course, the press didn't touch it. Um, they were too busy uh, talking about Trump at that time in December. Uh, so that's one thing is that she made these allegations a while ago and reiterated them once other women started coming forward. She validated it and said, yes, I've been talking about this. It happened to me. Another thing is that um, to uh, they aren't too graphic. I mean, obviously they would make women uncomfortable. Um, but nobody's claiming that he attempted to rape them. Nobody's nobody's like they're not embellishing it to try to make him look worse. You know, they're saying you know he asked me sexual questions, which I felt uncomfortable. You know, he wanted to. You know, he suggested we play strip poker. You know, which was you know probably in in jest. Uh, um, but it still made me feel uncomfortable. I was his employee. It just was kind of a weird thing. You know, another woman, you know, that, and we actually have the picture. Um, and I've seen it. Yes, the woman looks almost on the verge of tears. And there's Cuomo with his hands on her face, looking directly into her eyes and, um, you know, saying, can I kiss you? Um, you know, and things like that. I mean, you know, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not excusing his behavior and saying it's not a big deal, but I'm saying, at the same time, it's not like they're outlandish. You know, he dropped his pants for me. He took me into a back room and, you know, and violently started kissing me and threw me against the wall. I mean, it was nothing, you know, it's not like they're just embellishing these things to really make it look, make him look bad. They're just saying, this is what happened. I felt really uncomfortable. It put me in an odd position. You know, he was my employee. He's much older than I am, or he's my employer. He's much older than I am. He's the governor. You know, um, I didn't know what to say at the time. I didn't know how to react. Um, you know, he may have been joking. He may not have been joking. I don't know. It just was uncomfortable. You know, um, these kind of things uh, make me think that it's it's um, pretty legitimate, I, I think. Um, of course, that doesn't mean he's guilty. And I, I want to make that clear that I'm not already saying that the man is guilty of this. I'm saying they just... If I was a jury, if I was on a jury, um, these are things that I would take into consideration that, um, 
yeah, I, 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 I can, it seems believable. Um, and I just, I just want to make the point, uh, to validate what I said, um, about the last article, you see here that they made every effort to show both sides. They contacted Cuomo for statements. He didn't respond, but they commented and they asked him. They also released a statement that he'd made a couple of days ago. They gave both sides of the story here. They said her version, they gave his version, um, that he was just being playful. He was just, you know, all this. They didn't do that in the last article. So you see that, you know, it was a very biased article, the last one. It gives you that to them, the, the writers obviously felt that, that was a good move to open up adoptions to gay and lesbian couples. And in this one, they're trying to both sides it. They're being um, much more fair and balanced here. They're giving both sides saying, we're not making the decision here. You can decide. So anyway, I just want to throw that in there just to show you the difference. I mean, both articles are important. That's not why I chose the article. But, but having said that, I just want to give you the perspective that, you know, how the media can be, um, how a media can try to lead you to an opinion to what they want their opinion to be. Um, here I have a couple of, of good news stories. Uh, um, we don't get to talk about a lot of good news. Oh my, and we're already way over time. Um, but let me just tell you, one of the stories is that 4 million Johnson & Johnson COVID-19 vaccines are going to be doled out across the U.S. This is wonderful news. Um, added with the other two um, vaccines, we should start getting these vaccines uh, with Pfizer and Moderna. We should start getting these vaccines all over the country. That is fantastic, excellent news. Um, and the other international story, I'm sorry, I'm going through these rather quickly, but we're over time. Uh, but I, I wanted to get to these. In Nigeria, hundreds of kidnapped Nigerian schoolgirls are freed. Um, last week, um, I didn't get a chance to talk about the story, but 279 girls were taken hostage in, in uh, Nigeria. Um, and now, uh, and, you know, obviously that was a horrible situation. Uh, the gunmen came in, they rushed to school, they took these girls hostages. Um, it comes on the heel of just a couple of weeks ago, they took 27 teenage boys hostage, and those boys were released recently. And uh, they were taking them hostage because they wanted um, an exchange of, of their own hostages being released from jail. But um, they, I, I guess, just gave up. Um, and decided to release them probably because they were going to be killed if uh, if they continued to hold these uh, girls hostage. Anyway, that is just excellent news. Um, just wonderful. Uh, I know that many uh, Christians and Muslims and Jews have all been praying for these girls' release. And so it's wonderful um, that these girls were released without harm. Um, and so, yeah, just great news there. Uh, yeah, we're we're quite a bit over. Um, so I hopefully that I, I wish I could have gone into more detail about the good news because I spent a lot of time talking about the other stuff. But uh, but anyway, hope you guys have a great week. Um, I think it's going to be a great week coming up. We're having um, 
Well, it's just my goal. I mean, I, there's nothing happening particularly that, I, that I'm saying it's going to be a great week. I'm just saying it's going to be a great week. Let's make it a great week. We're just going to be thinking positive and looking at the bright side of things instead of the negative. And, um, you know, so I just hope everyone has a great week. And we'll see you here next week. And until then, bye, everyone.